How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. Give you a few moments of silent prayer to rehearse all those sins this afternoon or this evening on the traffic coming over. Get back in fellowship. Get ready to focus and concentrate because we have one of those tough chapters to deal with. It's full of strange names and even stranger places and unusual events. So we have to concentrate. Can't fall asleep or you'll get lost. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to gather together this evening to study your word, that our minds and our souls may be refreshed by the eternal truths that we study, and that we might be encouraged by being reminded of your faithfulness, your omnipotence, your, the way you fight for us in every battle of life. Pray that you would help us to understand the things we study, and that God the Holy Spirit would make these things clear to us. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13. Now, just as we prayed, I heard somebody come in late. I don't know who it was. I don't care. But I know that there's only one entry here. And I know that y'all have been so well trained not to ever walk into any place late that it's somewhat embarrassing. I know that for years when I was in college, I must have been a senior before I'd walk into a class late. I'd have my hand on the door and the bell would ring and I'd just go back. So uh, I don't want you thinking that here. We don't have one entrance, so when you come in late, everybody's going to see. And that's okay. We'll just, we're relaxed. We have relaxed mental attitude, grace orientation, and we know that uh, someday that'll be us. So everybody just relax about it and come in. Just don't make a big commotion. Genesis chapter 13. Now, we've been studying the life of Abraham, and we have been looking at the life of Abraham through the framework of the tests that God has brought into his life. God brings tests into every one of our lives. He allows these tests to take place in order to give us opportunities or or tests for the application of the doctrine that's in our soul. And we've gone through three tests already. These tests in chapter 12 had to do with the land. And they focus on these, this part of the, of the Abrahamic covenant. Now we come down to Genesis 13, 14 through 18, and we hit what is called in literature a hinge or a transition Paragraph, a hinge or transition paragraph. It's called that way. If you think about the hinge of a door, the hinge of a door connects the door or the cabinet to the wall. And so, in, in one sense, two things are turning on that hinge. And so this hinge or transition paragraph relates to what just went on prior, which is where what we've studied the last several lessons, where Abram separated himself from Lot. And in that, we studied grace orientation and the faith rest drill as problem-solving devices, how to utilize grace orientation as a problem-solving device. And so Abram, faced with the third test, remember each of these tests dealt with the land. The first test was to get out of your country and go to a land, and he did that. There was partial obedience because he didn't divest himself of his family. He left, he left Ur the Chaldees with his father, and with his nephew Lot. Once his father died, he took Lot with him on into the land. Then there was a reiteration of that promise in Genesis 2-7, where God said to your descendants, I will give this land. Two elements are reiterated in that promise. Remember, the Abrahamic covenant has three elements, land, seed, and blessing. And so in the promise to your descendants, I will give this land, you have two elements. Descendants relates to seed, 
and the land, of course, relates to the land. That's followed up by a test. There was a famine in the land. Just because you're in God's will doesn't mean life's going to be smooth. There's going to be rough spots, and there are going to be difficulties and tests. And there was famine in the land, and the test was whether or not Abram would trust God and stay in the land. He failed. He went out of the land, created some problems down in Egypt, and finally returned, got back in fellowship. And we have our third test was in chapter 13. Verse 6 tells us the land was not able to support them. He and Lot both returned with numerous servants and employees, people working with them, and the land was not able to support both of them. And so it was time to finally separate from Lot. And so Abram utilized grace orientation, and he offered Lot all the land. Take whatever you want to. Look all around and see all this beautiful land and take the best. Take whatever you want. You have the option. And we saw that Lot looked down to the valley, the the valley on the plain of the Jordan, down along the Dead Sea, Sodom and Gomorrah, and looked like the Garden of the Lord, looked like the Garden of Eden, looked like paradise. And he went down there. But we saw that Lot had no no understanding of the, our concern for the moral issue of what was taking place in Sodom. And after Lot chose and left, then we come to our passage in verse uh, 14. Now, verse 13 gives us the spiritual commentary on the section. The men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. What's interesting is that this begins to foreshadow coming events. Sodom is going to play a major role in in chapter 15, and then, of course, when we get down to about chapter 19, it's going to be the major focal point. But the, the narrative begins to a focus on what's going to happen in Sodom and begins to build uh, by way of foreshadowing. So in Genesis 13:14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. So Abram at this point is in Bethel. And Bethel is in the uh, sort of the north central highlands. And from the heights of Bethel, he is able to get a panoramic view of all that God has uh, provided for him. And the command is to look in verse 14. And then if you skip down to verse 17, it is to arise and walk in the land through its length and its width, for I have given it to you. So again, we see a reiteration of a promise. Now, what is that going to do? That tells us that they're going to, God has made a promise. The next step is God will test Abram on the basis of that promise. See, God is going to teach you doctrine, and then he's going to test you on the doctrine. God is going to uh, teach each of us through various promises, and as we learn, he tests on the basis of that doctrine. Now, the thing that we have to go back to with Abram is recognizing that these promises that God's making to Abram all relate back to the Abrahamic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant is to the Jew what positional truth is for the church age believer. The Abrahamic covenant is to the Jew what positional truth is for the church age believer. To crank it on down to the lower shelf, the Abrahamic covenant is to the Jew what the Forty things are for the believer at the point of salvation. And what he is having to do is learn to live on the basis of those ironclad, unconditional promises that God gave him in the Abrahamic covenant. As we've studied many times, covenant means a contract. It means that God has entered into a legal contractual relationship with uh, his people, whoever it may be, with Abram here, with the Jews later on. And that legal contract has certain conditions. But in the case of the Abrahamic covenant, it is an unconditional covenant. That means God is contractually obligating himself to certain things, irregardless of how Abraham behaves. It's not based on who Abraham is or what Abraham does. And the important thing to remember with an unconditional uh, with, with this Abrahamic covenant is it was modeled on the uh, 
ancient world uh, contract form called a royal grant or a land grant treaty. And in a land grant treaty, you had a, a king or the lord or the suzerain of a particular country or empire, and he had certain satellite uh, countries or vassal states. And the uh, king would reward a vassal for obedience or for whatever or just because he needed that vassal to serve in some kind of a protective, uh, protective situation. The, the vassal would give a certain piece of land or he would bestow certain privileges on the vassal. And it was unconditioned, no strings attached, it was a free gift. This is the model for the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham was freely given this contract by God. It contained the provisions for the land, seed, and the blessing. So the application that we have to think of here, as Abraham is learning to live on the basis of the promises in the Abrahamic covenant, you and I as church-age believers are learning to live on the basis of everything that God gave us at the instant of salvation. The instant of salvation we have salvation-related blessings that are ours forever. We have been redeemed from sin. God the Father's propitiated. His, his character has been satisfied by the death of Christ. So that's a one-time-for-all action. We have, we've been justified. Justification takes place at a point in time. At the instant you put your faith alone in Christ alone, God the Father imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then when His holiness, when His righteousness and justice looks at the righteousness of Christ in you, He declares you justified, not because of anything that you've done, but because of who Jesus Christ is and what He did on the cross. So that is our positional reality. Beyond that, we have other things that take place. We have various ministries of God the Holy Spirit that transpire at that instant of salvation. We are sealed by the Spirit. We are indwelt by the Spirit. And all of this relates to sanctification. We are baptized by the Holy Spirit, which is really the foundation for the whole spiritual life. This is Paul's argument in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, where he is arguing that because, he says, don't you know that you have been baptized into Christ's death and buried with him, and therefore as he was uh, raised to new life, so we have been raised to new life. So the foundation for the Christian life is what took place in terms of positional realities at the instant of salvation. So when you talk about positional truth, that seems like an abstract term for some people, but it has to do with everything that we have because of our position, because of our identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection and being part of the body of Christ. In the same way in the Old Testament, a Jew, when they are saved and become part of that spiritual seed of Abraham, they become a Jew indeed and heirs to all those promises in the Abrahamic covenant. That's their positional reality. They can't ever lose it. It will never, it will never change. So the test for Abraham was to learn to live in light of those, those positional realities, one of which was the land. And that's why those first three tests in <clears throat> chapters 12 and 13 all relate to the land. And so he is told in verse 15, God says, For all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. Notice there are no conditions on that promise. God doesn't say that as long as you're obedient, you can have the land. Now, in the Mosaic Covenant, which was a temporary covenant, in the Mosaic Covenant, God says, You will only enjoy the blessings of the land if you obey me. If you disobey me, I'm going to take you out of the land. But you will return to me, and when you return to me, then I will bring you from the four corners of the earth back to the land. That is a promise that has yet to be fulfilled. This is one of the things that I hope that uh, uh, either Randy or Tommy or I, or maybe all three of us will address when we have the uh, prophecy conference, and that is that in the book of Deuteronomy, it is clear that the return to, it, to the land by the Jews is a 
return from the four corners of the earth. There are two returns forecast in Deuteronomy and in Isaiah. One is a return in unbelief, and one is a return in belief. And the key thing that you need to note when you read through Deuteronomy is that it is a return from the four corners of the earth. That means they return from everywhere on the earth. In uh, 536 to 516 B.C., when you had various returns from Babylon under uh, Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, those were not returns from the four corners of the earth. Those returns did not involve Jews coming back from the diaspora, from Alexandria, from Asia Minor, from Rome, from Greece. They were just returning from Babylon. So the return in 536 to 516 is not the return in belief promised in Deuteronomy, that the Jews would return from the four corners of the earth in unbelief. So, I mean, in belief. So that is something that has yet to be fulfilled. But the foundation for all of those promises in Deuteronomy, later on in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, uh, in, in Daniel, all of the promises given in the, in the prophets related to a future for Israel are grounded on the unconditional nature of this land grant that God has told Abraham that I will give this land to you and your descendants forever. This is why the Jews always, from God's perspective and as Christians, we must always examine and look at Jews from God's perspective and look at history from God's perspective. This is why the Jews always have a right to that land. There's some debate, there's some issue, there's always some Christians who think, well... You know, this may not be the return. Folks, I just said, and we'll go over it at some time, there are only two returns promised in Scripture, one in unbelief and one in, in belief. The one in belief takes place at the end of the tribulation. The one in unbelief has to take place at the beginning of the tribulation, so there will be a nation there with whom the Antichrist can sign a peace treaty. And what we're seeing today is Jews are returning to Israel from the four corners of the earth. They're coming from Russia. They're coming from Ethiopia. They're coming from America. They're coming from uh, China. They're coming from India. They're coming from Central Asia. They're coming from the four corners of the earth. So what we're seeing is prophecy fulfilled. But see, that prophecy that's being fulfilled, and I'm getting way off course here, but that prophecy that's being fulfilled isn't related to you or me in the church age. Because it can still be 100 or 200 or 300 years before the rapture occurs. All this is showing is that certain events may be fulfilled related to Israel in the tribulation and setting things up for the tribulation prior to the rapture. But it doesn't have anything to do with the timing of the rapture. It doesn't mean it's any closer, any further away. It just means that God is setting the stage for what will take place after the rapture. And that only stands to reason that if certain things are going to domino right after the rapture, then it would, it would stand to reason that certain historical events would begin to transpire. Or if we're close to the rapture, you might be able to see the, the pieces being set up on the chessboard in preparation for what will happen after the rapture. But it doesn't affect imminency because we still don't know when it's going to happen. It could be tomorrow. It could be next year. It could still be uh, two or three hundred years from now. But the Jews that are in the land now, I do not believe, will ever be run out because the Bible only says there are two returns, not three or four or ten or twenty, or they'll go back and reestablish themselves and leave and go back. You only see two returns, one in unbelief, which is what has to take place before, I think it must take place before the rapture. Doesn't, well, maybe not, maybe not have to, but it more than likely would if you're going to have the tribulation begin any time right after the rapture because the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel. That's the point in Daniel chapter 9, is that Daniel's 70th week, which is another term for the tribulation, Daniel's 70th week begins when the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with the nation Israel. That means a nation Israel has to exist in the land for that peace treaty to, to be signed. So that would, by inference, mean what happened. Oh, there we go. You know, I say, every now and then I just lose sound. It's a, maybe this mute button is too sensitive or something. I don't know. Anyway, the foundation for all of this is given here, Genesis 13:15. For all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. 
And then there's an expansion on the seed element of the Abrahamic covenant, given in verse 16. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. So God promises to Abraham that through this line, there will be an innumerable amount of descendants. And then verses 17 through 18 is the conclusion of chapter 13. Abram is commanded by God to arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. And his walking through the land is a sign that he is taking dominion over that land. He is, he is marking it off. He is examining the dimensions of what God has given to him. In other words, God is saying to him, you need to become familiar with the, with the realities of this covenant. In the same way, the believer is to become familiar with the realities of what we were given in positional truth. We should be as familiar with the doctrines and terminology of propitiation, justification, imputation, baptism of the Spirit, indwelling, uh, filling of the Spirit, priesthood of the believer, and all of the other uh, 39 things or 40 things that are given to us at the instant of salvation. We need to be aware of them, and they should be so much a part of our thinking that it affects how we make decisions and what we do every day. And then in verse 18, we get the transition statement that sets things up for the next chapter. Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees. This is probably some form of an oak tree. The terebinth trees of Mamre. Now, Mamre is not a location Mamre, as we'll find in the next chapter, Mamre is a person. He is an Amorite chieftain who has staked out his property in this area down near what later becomes Hebron. Hebron is in the disputed territory today. It's under Palestinian control. There's a tremendous amount of bloodshed in Hebron. But Hebron, biblically, is also was a major Canaanite city. And at the time that Joshua uh, took the land, Hebron is the area where Caleb went in and uh, took control, and that was part of Caleb's inheritance. So all of these, these places have significance later on. So he moves down to live in the vicinity of what will be Hebron, uh, marked off now simply the place of the terebinth trees belonging to Mamre, which are in Hebron. Uh, this was an, an anachronism here. Hebron was not founded uh, for a few more years, and, and but this locates it in the minds of the Jews who remember their first, the first Jews who are reading this are outside the land on the plains of Moab on the verge of entering into the promised land. So this is making sense to them as to why these places are going to be important to them. And it was a at Hebron there that he built an altar to the Lord. So through chapter 13, we see that Abraham is in fellowship. He's worshiping the Lord. He's passing the test. And now in chapter 14, we come to the next test, the next test. And the tests up to this point have been related to the land paragraph of the blessing, the land paragraph of of the, excuse me, the land paragraph of the covenant. Three elements to the covenant, land, seed, and blessing. This test is going to be related to the blessing paragraph of the Abrahamic covenant. He moves down to Mamre as a result of God's promise, and he lives there and begins to associate with these Gentiles there, with these Amorites, with Mamre and his brothers, as we'll see when we get into the next chapter. Now, remember... In Genesis uh, 12:2, God told Abram, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And that is an imperative in the last phrase of verse 2, you shall be a blessing. In other words, go be a blessing. So Abram failed to be a blessing when he was out of the land, when he was down living in deception in Egypt. And, in other, and he brought uh, a plague and he brought cursing on the house of Pharaoh. Now he is going to get another opportunity to be a blessing by association to those who are around him. 
And so a test comes up, and this is going to involve a military test. It also involves the land because the land is invaded by a foreign power, a foreign coalition of four kings. And in verse 1 we read, And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Keterleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, the king of Admah, Shemaver, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, which is known later by the name of Zoar. So what we see is a detailed account of a military campaign that extends down through verse 17. Detailed account that goes down through verse 17. And what we're going to see in these 17 verses is that God gives the blessing of victory over evil for the believer. It is God who is the hero of Old Testament narrative. You could say, you know, most people when they sit down, if they would summarize this chapter, they would put the hero as Abram. Abram trusts God and defeats the enemies and rescues Lot. But that misstates what's going on here. It is God who is providing the blessing and the victory. God is always the hero behind all Old Testament narrative. And because of God's provision over Abraham, there is blessing by association to the to his pagan neighbors. Now, as I was studying this passage... And thinking about this the last couple of weeks, I kept thinking in my head, why is it that we have such a detailed account of this military campaign? What in the world is God the Holy Spirit doing here? Why do we have all this geographical detail? Why do we have all this information about the personnel involved? What What is it that the Holy Spirit wants us to pay attention to? And that's the kind of question you should be asking yourself anytime you're reading the Scripture. Why is this here? I mean, why do we have these stories in our Bible? There were many other things that happened, uh, hundreds if not thousands of events that occurred between 4000 B.C. and the time of our Lord. Or we could just say from 4000 B.C. to 400 B.C. Why is it that God the Holy Spirit chose these events to put in the Word and not other events? Because he's demonstrating something. It's history. It's real, genuine history, but it is editorialized history. Because the prophets are writing this to demonstrate that God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is a God that is unlike all the other gods. He is a God who speaks and reveals and a God who intervenes and interferes in the life of man. And he is always true to his covenant. So an underlying theme throughout the Old Testament is that God is always faithful to his covenant. And that is a principle of application for us. God is always faithful to his promises. That's why we as conservative evangelicals believe so vehemently in the doctrine of the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. If the Scripture isn't inerrant, If this isn't the inspired Word of God where God has objectively revealed this to us, then how do you know you can count on it? How do you know which promise is for today and which promise isn't? How do you know that God's going to fulfill His promises? How do you know that you can trust Him? So you have to start with an inerrant, infallible Bible. If you don't start with an infallible, inerrant Bible, then the Bible is just another piece of religious literature that's no better and no worse than the the Quran than the Bhagavad Gita, than the Book of Mormon, uh, than the Pearl of Great Price, or any of the other religious books that are out there. And so you might as well just leave it at home, put it on your shelf somewhere to show that you've got something of an education, and go have a good time. But if the Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God, if God has spoken to us, then nothing else in life matters ultimately than to know what He has said to us. Francis Schaeffer said it well years ago in one of his books, God, the God who is there and he is not silent. God has spoken. And if God has spoken, then that means that we can understand what he has said. It's not a guessing game. Because if he is a God who is 
speaking, and if he is the God who he has revealed himself to be as the creator God, then that means that he has created us in such a way as to be able to receive what he communicates. It's like, like a radio signal. He not only built the signal, but he built in each one of us the receiver so that we can understand the signal. It's not a guessing game. That's what happens with all these liberals and, and people who really don't want to know anything about God. Trust me, people say, well, the Bible's so hard to understand. The reason it's hard to understand is you've got, you've got your sin nature in the way, and you don't want to understand because you're arrogant. You don't want the Bible to say what it says it says because you want to do things differently, and, and you're just not happy with it. God's stepping on your toes, and so you want to do away with the pain. But that's not honest. Okay, we get into this section, we have to decide why it's there, and there's a very good reason for all of this, and we'll see it as we go through the text. Now, let's start off with some some maps. Before we do that, just to reinforce what I just said about the importance of the Bible, its inerrancy, which also applies to its historicity, I have a quote here from G. Ernest Wright, who is sort of a granddaddy of biblical archaeology. And Dr. Wright said, quote, The Bible, unlike other religious literature of the world, is not centered in a series of moral, spiritual, and liturgical teachings, but in the story of a people who lived at a certain time and place. Biblical faith is the knowledge of life's meaning in the light of what God did in a particular history. Thus, the Bible cannot be understood unless the history it relates is taken seriously. You can't divorce the Bible from the historical events surrounding the message. Because with the Bible, what he is saying is the Bible's message is grounded in historical reality. If the history isn't right, the message isn't right. If the history is flawed, then the theology is flawed. God, the God of the Bible is the only God of all religious literature who anchors what he says in space-time history. Nothing, no other religious book does that. Thus he says, the, the Bible cannot be understood unless the history it relates is taken seriously. Knowledge of biblical history is essential to the understanding of biblical faith. So when we look at history in the Bible, it's not just a matter of studying unrelated facts and and things that happened in a bygone era, but it is understanding how those facts relate to God's plans and purposes in human history and that those events have uh, meaning and significance, not just for somebody 3,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago, but for us today. Now let's look at the get oriented geographically here. Now, not everybody's a map lover. I've always loved reading maps, so we're going to focus on some maps and get a little oriented on this. This is a map of the Middle East. Let me see here. There was something I wanted to do, and I didn't do it, so we're going to start another program, and then I'll jump back into that slide. Here's our picture of the, the Middle East. Now, over here in this area is modern Iraq. Up in this area here, this, this peninsula that sticks out over here, that's modern Turkey. Just north of modern Turkey, we have the Black Sea. And over here is the Caspian Sea. To the east, just up in this uh, upper left corner, you have the Aegean Sea. And just to the west of there, you have Greece. Okay, so this is the eastern end of the Mediterranean. You have the island of Crete here and the island of Cyprus here. This area is also known as the Levant. It's the area around the Mediterranean. Egypt is down here on this south, uh, to the southwest of, of Israel on the lower left-hand corner of the map. It is this area right in here that we're focused on in our, in our study tonight. This is the area roughly, I put that square a little bit too far to the right, but that's the area of the promised land. Okay, now what I want to do is come in and take a look at this area right here. That is the area of land that God promised 
to Israel. This is the promise, promised land in the hotbed of war ever since. So we're going to... Oh, I forgot I did this on this slide. Okay, let's look at these people in verse, verse 1. came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariah, king of Elisar, Keterleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations. Now, let's put their names in here. Okay, Amraphel is over here. He is the king of Shinar. Now, these are mostly city-states. We don't know how large they were. The unfortunate thing is we can't tie any of these individuals to anyone known in history at this time. There's no known connection whatsoever. There have been a number of attempts, but they all fall short at some level. But we can identify the geographical areas that they're associated with. Amraphel is the king of Shinar. Shinar, according to Genesis 10.10, is the area around uh, Babylon. So his uh, country, his area of influence is here in the center part of what is now Iraq. The second person mentioned is Arioch. Arioch is called the king of Elisar. There's absolutely no reference anywhere in any ancient documents to such a place. We, and archaeology just hasn't recovered. Now, that's not a problem. See, the liberal comes along and says, well, you know, this is just something that somebody, some biblical editor put in there just to make it a good story. Well, they used to say that about the Hittites until in 1927 they suddenly discovered at a place called Bogazkoi, uh, the capital of the Hittite Empire, and all the liberals had mud on their face because for, for decades they had been saying there was no such thing as Hittite people. So you see, we may not have discovered the information yet, but that doesn't mean the Bible's not true. It's just that we haven't discovered uh, uh, historically or archaeologically any evidence. Now, based on his name and the etymology in the name Elisar, many scholars would link this uh, area to, an, to the area in Eastern Asia Minor, connecting it to the region of Pontus, which is just south of the Black Sea, on down into Cappadocia. In fact, the Vulgate, which is the Latin translation of the Old Testament done by uh, Jerome back in the... 4th century uh, A.D., uh, and Symmachus, which was a Greek translation of the Old Testament, both translate uh, Elisar as Pontus. The Genesis Apocryphon translates it as Cappadocia, which is to the southeast of Pontus. Pontus was really up in this area, up here, and Cappadocia more down in this area. So apparently this has to do with some alliance or coalition of people in the eastern area of Turkey. The third individual mentioned who ends up being the military leader of the group is Keterleomer. And Keterleomer is identified as the king of Elam. And Elam is located down here just off of the Persian Gulf in the area where I have highlighted and to the east. This is the area of Elam, and it was a uh, major power broker in the next uh, generation, or the next uh, century, actually. And then the last person identified here is Tidal. Tidal is said to be the king of the Goyim, the king of the Goyim. And even though there are several Hittite kings who have this name between the period 1750 and 1200 B.C., there is no known person of this name in the period of Abraham. Abraham was born in 2166, and so the events in Genesis 14 would be somewhere between 2080 and 2090 B.C. So this is a good 250, 300 years before any evidence that we have that most people try to tie it to. But if, you, if you're going to stick with biblical dates, Abraham is going to be around 20, around 2000 to 2100 uh, BC. This, of course, excludes uh, Hammurabi. For many years, people tried to identify Amraphel with Hammurabi. In English, it looks like there's a, a relationship between the two names, but philologically, that's been disproven and there's no connection. Besides, Hammurabi lived between 1790 and 1750 BC, some 350 years after. Uh, these events. 
So all we can say is that these areas existed, title, based on a number of philological things, etymological terms, seems to have been a ruler of a coalition made up of Hittites and Luvians. Luvians were Greeks or Greek predecessors, probably related to the uh, Javan people or the Ionians operating in the uh, western part of Turkey. So the point that I'm making here is if you look at the at this map, you have a coalition of four major powers at that time. This is not just, you know, four bandits who gather together three or four hundred men and go on a rampage down through the uh, Dead Sea Valley area. This is something comparable in their age to a world war. You have four strong military powers aligning themselves together and they are involved in an assault down through the Jordan Valley here. And it seems like their, their ultimate reason is economic. Those indications in the text, there's a problem with what's called tar pits in some versions. In other versions, it's, it's pits of bitumen or asphalt. And these were natural asphalt um, wells that just bubbled up to the surface and these, this was important in construction. It was used by the Egyptians in the building of the pyramids and other buildings. It was also used in construction uh, over in Babylon and many other areas. And so they were getting their uh, bitumen down here, and suddenly uh, there, was a, there was a problem. Okay, let's go to the next, next map. Now we're going to zero in a little bit on the area of Palestine here. This is the area, the, the route that... The, this coalition is going to come from is from up here in the north, and they're going to head into the south down the valley of the Jordan. And they had done this some uh, 13 years earlier. This is what's described in the first three verses. They made war with Bera, the king of Sodom, Beersheth, the king of Gomorrah, Shinab, the king of Adma, Shemaber, the king of Zeboim, and uh, the king of Bela, and all these joined together in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Now, before I'll come back to verse 2 in a minute, but the point I'm making chronologically is in verse 4. Twelve years they served Keterleomer. Now, notice in the first list in verse 1, Amraphel is mentioned first. That would indicate that he had priority of leadership. He probably put the coalition together by... Verse 4, Keterleomer seems to have risen to prominence, and that may be because he uh, had the military talent to conquer this area. And so down here on the southeastern shore of, of, uh, of the Dead Sea is where you have the five cities of the plain uh, located, this Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Bela. And it was... And they had been conquered, and they were to send a tribute every year back to this coalition. And it would have been not only in terms of natural resources, but also in terms of money. And after 12 years, they decided they weren't going to do it anymore. That's what it means in the second part of verse 4, that in the 13th year, they rebelled. They didn't send their tribute. So the coalition got together again and embarked on their second military campaign down to discipline all of these little groups along here that were in rebellion. Now, here's a picture of the Dead Sea. I took this out of uh, uh, Randy Price's book, The Stones Cry Out, which is a great book on biblical archaeology, and I recommend it to anybody who's interested in that. And this map, this is just the southern and eastern portion of the Dead Sea. And the area that is shaded is not underwater, but it is 300 meters under sea level. And if you see here on the, on the right-hand side of this southern tip of the Dead Sea, there are five stars. And these five stars represent the five cities of the plains. Up here at a location known as Bab Edra, you have what is thought to be Sodom. We'll come back in a lot more detail on the archaeology when we get into chapter 19. Then south of there, along the Wadi Numira, you have the remains of Gomorrah. These have been discovered and I think fairly well identified. 
Then down along the Wadi Hesa, you have the, uh, re- uh, uh, the remains of a village called Safi, which is identified as Zoar. And then along the Wadi Fifa, you have a, a village or the remains of a village Fifa, which was uh, identified or thought to be Adma. And then down at the uh, southern tip on the uh, Wadi Kanazir, Name for the, the remains there, Kanazir. This is Zevoim. There are salt flats here on the southern part of the sea, and so this is thought to be the area where you have the, the cities of the plain that at one time was quite beautiful. Now here again is just a, a raw map of the area. To give you that look, here's once again the Black Sea's up here. This is the Crimea sticking down in the Black Sea. Ukraine is just to the north. This is the Black Sea. Just south of the Black Sea, you have modern Turkey. Uh, Over in this area where you have the Tigris and Euphrates, ancient Mesopotamia, that is mostly modern Iraq. And then this large area off to the east is Persia. This body of water is the Caspian Sea. Down here is the Persian Gulf. Okay, everybody ought to be oriented by now. Let's Zoom in a little bit on this area. Now I'm going to lay, try to lay over this another map so you can see a modern, where the modern states are. Okay, did you catch that? Here we have Turkey in the north, Syria in this teal colored area. The green is Iraq. The red to the south is Saudi Arabia. The brown is Jordan. The maroon and gray here represents Israel. The maroon area is the area occupied by Israel. The gray area just over here is the Gaza Strip. And this gray area here is the disputed area known as the West Bank. Now let's put in some cities so we know what we're talking about. Here is Salem. Salem is known today as Jerusalem. Jerusalem is located in the uh, West Bank area. Up here is Damascus, still operational, the capital of Syria. Then here is the location of Sodom and the cities of the plain on the southern part of the Dead Sea. This little spot of blue up here is the Sea of Galilee. The larger blue area down here is the Dead Sea. And this blue line running between them is the Jordan River. Okay, now the area to the East of the Jordan over here, the modern country of Jordan, is biblically referred to as Transjordan, trans meaning across. So it's the, the Transjordan region. On the Transjordan area, there are two uh, towns, Kiriathaim and Ashtaroth. These were ancient villages that are no longer in existence, but they are pertinent to our passage. Now let's get look at your passage, look at your Bible. Verse 5, in the 14th year, Chedorlaomer, or Chedorlaomer, and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim. The Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim. Now, who in the world are the uh, Rephaim? This is the first battle. So they come down from the north, and they have their first pitched engagement against the Rephaim of Ashtaroth. Now the Rephaim are part of the group of pre-Canaanite or pre-Israelite inhabitants in the land of Canaan. They were renowned for their height. These were giants. One of the most renowned of their descendants was Og, Og of Bashan. And Og had a nine-cubit bed. He was said to be nine cubits tall. Now a cubit was 18 inches. So that makes him close to 13 and a half feet tall. These guys were big. He was an ancestor, by the way, of Goliath. So there were giants in the land. That's exactly what happens in Numbers 13, remember, when the the Jews, that Exodus generation, came to Kadesh Barnea, and they sent the 12 tribes into the land. They came back and they said, we can't do it. See, they misread their operational order. The operational order wasn't to go in and see if they could take the land, but was to spy it out so they could take the land. See, it's important, it's important how you interpret the Scripture. They were looking at how to take the land. Now, the, they came back and they said, we can't do it for three reasons. They have walled villages. The people are like grasshoppers. That means there's a lot of them. And they're giants in the land. 
And the Rephaim were part of that group of giants that inhabited the land at this time. So the first battle is against the Rephaim, and these people are, te- are, are uh, mentioned in Scripture in Deuteronomy 2, verse 11 and 20, and in uh, Deuteronomy 3, verse 11. The Moabites called them the Emim, and the Ammonites called them the Zamzumim. So they defeat the Rephaim. This is a huge force going up against a, a team of uh, an army of giants. Then they have their second battle. They defeat the Zuzim in Ham. Now we're not sure exactly where Ham was located, but it's going to have to be in this same area. And the Zuzim were also a group of giants. So their second major battle defeats. Uh, uh, at least a larger, physically larger force, a force made up of physically larger soldiers. And this indicates that the armies of, of um, Keterleomer are well-trained, they're well-disciplined, and they're experienced. They're not going up against experienced armies, though. The next battle takes on a group of people called the Emim in Shaveh Kiriathaim. And this is in the Transjordan area, and the Emim also were a group of giants. So what we see is this military force under Keterleomer is well-trained, well-disciplined, and they're able to take out what appears to be fairly significant armies put on the field by these giants. And then we come to the last battle, which involves the Horites. The Horites. Now, some people have identified the Horites as the Hurrians, but that is no longer acceptable. It's been pretty much uh, demonstrated that the Hurrians and the Horites were different people, and there's no evidence of Hurrians being this far south. Uh, the Horites usually had Semitic names, not Hurrian names. So they were... Uh, in some ways influenced by the uh, Canaanites. It's evident from various passages in Scripture that, that these were a distinct group of people that were also part of the land, and they lived in uh, Seir, which is the mountainous region later known as Edom, which is where the Edomites would dwell. So they're defeated by the, this was a large people group, and they're defeated by the coalition, the Keterleomer coalition. Then they head southeast to El Paran. El Paran is located on the Gulf of Aqaba. It's the southernmost part of their campaign. It is seen as the same area uh, known in later, uh, later literature as El Parat. It was known as the name Paran is a name for the wilderness area that is just east of the Sinai Peninsula. This area uh, surrounding it over here, shaded in gray, would have been part of the Paran wilderness area. Later on, this area, or this village is known as El Ot, which contains the same initial uh, consonant L as El Paran. So these are understood to be identical. And then they make a, like a fishhook move, and they head to the north, uh, northwest. And at Kadesh Barnea, which of course becomes well known in later Jewish history, Kadesh Barnea, they defeat the, uh, a coalition of Amorites and Amalekites. Now in verse 7 we read, then they turned back and came to En Mishpat. En Mishpat means the well or the spring of judgment. And in Mishpat was the ancient name for what later became known as Kadesh Barnea. Now there's a coalition there made up of Amorites and Amalekites. Now Amorites were a large people group in the ancient world. In fact, they become, they're one of the major ethnic groups making up the Canaanites and they're a problem for the Jews all through this period all through the, the uh, period through Joshua, Judges, on into the period of, of uh, David and later because they didn't completely destroy them. The Amalekites were also a continuous problem for the Jews. The Amalekites were sort of a roving band of land pirates. 
I mean, they, they just wreaked devastation everywhere they went in the ancient world. And as a result of that, they carried with them a tremendous amount of booty, tremendous amount of, of uh, gold and, and precious stones. And, and they just moved back and forth from Egypt all the way across the desert over to uh, Babylon. And it wasn't until... Uh, well, at the Exodus, this is the first group of people that the Jews faced when they came out of Egypt. Right away, they had a pitched battle with the Amalekites. That was a story where Moses had to hold his arms up, and they got tired, and he would drop them. When he dropped his arms, the Jews would lose. When he raised his arms, they would win. And so it was uh, her and Aaron that had to stand on each side of Moses and prop up his arms. And they propped up his arms, and the Jews defeated the Amalekites. But they were a continuous scourge all through the period of the judges until Saul defeats them in a major battle. And Saul does almost everything God tells him to do. God said to kill every one man, woman, and child, all their sheep, cattle, and goats, and he didn't do it. He didn't kill their king. And this, that's the famous scene there in 1 Samuel 17 when, when uh, Samuel comes into Saul's court and he says, What's this bleeding of sheep that I hear? And uh, he hasn't, uh, Saul says, well, I thought I would, you know, just typical rationalization, I thought I would save the best to give a sacrifice to God. So he suddenly gets very holy. And uh, Agag, the king, is standing there. The king of the Amalekites is standing there, and he hasn't been killed. So Samuel reaches over and grabs Saul's sword, whirls around and decapitates Agag right there on the spot. And uh, that just one of those wonderful scenes of a godly man doing what God tells him to do. And he turned around and he told uh, Saul at that point that, that disobedience is like the sin of witchcraft. And for this reason, God is going to take the kingdom away from you. So those were the Amalekites, and they're not ultimately and finally defeated until David defeats them later on. But these, these little battles we think about in the Scripture, they're just glossed over. But these were major encounters. When Saul defeated the Amalekites, it broke the back of that coalition, and it brought a level of freedom and safety to the trade routes in the Middle East that they had known for almost a thousand years. And yet we know nothing of this in history. So it's, it's amazing how much we don't know. Well, the, the coalition of, of these four kings defeats the Amorites and the Amalekites, and they come over here and they defeat, and they finally have a battle against the, fi- the, the five kings of the Pentapolis. And they defeat them, in, and that's described in, starting in verse 8. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Sedim against Keterleomer and his allies in verse 9. And then and they're defeated. And they start to run. They go on a full-blown route. And we're told in verse 10, the valley of Sedim was full of asphalt pits. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there and the remainder fled to the mountains. So the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah got away. But they lost all their goods and their possessions, and their, uh, the the uh, Laomer and his crowd takes all the booty and gets all the wealth and captures Lot and his family along with it. So they, verse 17, they took all the goods of Sodom, verse 11, they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods, and departed. Then one who escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. Well, we'll stop there because what happens is they head north. And just in brief summary, what happens is Abram, who's living here in Hebron, he is going to have an alliance. He's going to take his 318 servants. And then he's going to ally himself with the Amorites who are living there with Mamre and his brothers. And so we don't know how large a group it was, but it probably wasn't more than a couple of thousand. I'm sure they were outnumbered 10 or 20 to 1. And they head north to a place called Hobah where they ambush Keterleomer and his armies and defeat them. This sets the stage for one of the most interesting meetings in all of the Bible. And that is the meeting of Abram 
with Melchizedek, and we'll get there next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word today. Thank you for uh, encouraging us with your faithfulness that you are the God who protected Abram and gave him victory over these enemies of Israel in the same way you are the God who through Jesus Christ has given us victory over every problem and difficulty that we face in our life. As Abram faced this challenge by trusting you, so we too face the challenges of our life by trusting you. We pray that we would be responsive to this challenge and what we've been taught this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.